Well, we are so glad that you guys are here with us today. We're continuing on through our Joshua study. I am thankful for Pastor Ben Curtis, our Buchanan campus pastor. Those of you watching at Buchanan, I'm sorry we stole him today. I have a, I hurt my back this week. I was just uh, haven't been able to, to to walk. Folks have been laughing at me all week long. That's okay. Uh, but Ben preached Thursday night, and he's here today. If I lock up, he's going to come right in. He's in the bullpen waiting to go. So um, we're excited. Well, I hope that doesn't happen. Just to be honest, so. Hope we can hang in there. We're talking about Joshua and courage, so you need to have some courage today if you're preaching on Joshua. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Joshua chapter 11, and we're going to talk about a, a battle plan to possess the land. Now, here's the thing today. This, will, this is going to take some in, engagement because I think it's a very important message. It's one of the reasons why we chose to study the book of Joshua. It's also one of the reasons why people stay away from the book of Joshua, because the book of Joshua can be a, a difficult and, and delicate book to study. But those of you who are just new with us, the children of Israel have left captivity in Egypt. Uh, they, uh, Because of their unbelief, the giants that they saw in the land, which we'll dig into today, they shrink back in fear 40 years. They wander in the wilderness, and then they have an opportunity opportunity to step in under Joshua's leadership and take possession of the land. We're going to see today over and over and over again, victory and possession are two separate things, and hopefully that'll be clear as, as we go on. And so what the children of Israel had to do under Joshua's leadership is they had to drive out these inhabited, fortified people in the land uh, so that they could take possession of the land. Now, again, for many people, even as we see the passages we're about to read, and it's going to be uh, a lot of imagery of, of battle, people being destroyed, defeated, killed, uh, people have a hard time with that. If you were here last week, one of the things that we said, we also, by the way, have have three different episodes on our podcast to deal with this in greater detail. I understand it's a real issue. But you have a group of people that have been living in the land of Canaan for over a thousand years. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, God says the children of Israel are going to possess this land, but not until the time of the Amorites or the sin, excuse me, the sin of the Amorites had reached their full measure. In other words, this group of people that were given to incest, to child sacrifice, just to all these type of just ruthless pagan practices, God is giving them time and time and time to repent. And some of them do. Rahab does. We saw that very early in the book of Joshua, this prostitute that understands the power of God and the people of God, and she surrenders to that. The entire group of people we know is the Gibeonites. They see the power of God and surrender to that. But many of these uh, people groups do not, and so judgment falls on them. Now, Joshua chapter 11. Let's go ahead and jump in, starting in verse 5. All the kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Chapter 11 starts very similar to chapter 10. You have another group of, of fortified city-state leaders, these kings who hated each other, but they come together because they have a common in, enemy, the nation of Israel, God's people that are coming in to take their land, and so they come together. The Scripture says in the first four verses here of uh, chapter 11 that they were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They also were more advanced in their weaponry for battle. They had horses and they had chariots more advanced than the children of Israel, but here we go. The Lord said to Joshua, verse 6, do not be afraid of them. Why does God tell Joshua to not be afraid? Because Joshua is Afraid. Now, it would make sense. You would be afraid, too, against overwhelming odds. You're a group of people that have just come out of slavery and captivity. You're outnumbered, and the armies that you're facing have more advanced equipment than, than you. Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, God says, 
I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Well, that, that's a hard passage. What, what's going on there? The, the horses and the chariots that the armies of Israel had were their advanced weaponry. Pastor Ben said this Thursday night. It was interesting. First time we see horses and chariots used in battle, but what God is saying to the children of Israel is, I want you to trust in me. I'm your advantage. Don't trust in these other things and try to leverage them. Those are lesser things. You trust in me, but we're all prone uh, to do just the opposite. So Joshua and his whole army, verse 7, uh, came against them suddenly in the waters of Miram, and they attacked them. If you have your Bible open, I'd encourage you maybe to, to underline that word, suddenly, because it's going to be one of the keys that we see to victory. And you see it over and over again. When God calls us to do something, the best thing to do is do it immediately, right? The longer that we wait, the more the enemy begins to work to rationalize and justify, justify it kind of in our mind to delay obedience. Verse 8, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Israel. God keeps his promise. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon. Now, some of you are like, well, th this is kind of getting weird with all these cities. So they, they defeated them, and then they pursued them. Here's what I want you to see. Momentum is happening here. The children of Israel are getting a victory, and then they gain some momentum and some confidence, and they're pursuing. And I want to say this to you. That's what God wants to do in your life spiritually. As we begin to get some spiritual victory in our life and begin to have some spiritual momentum, that's when things can get really good. And we're going to see that uh, today. Verse 9, Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstringed their horses and burned their chariots. Again, he's obedient to what God's called him to do, even though in the time it didn't make sense. And even though people around Joshua might have said, hey, Joshua, like we, we, don't, we don't have any horses and, and we don't have any chariots. These would be pretty cool to have. Like we, we, we might have an advantage there. And Joshua says, our advantage is the Lord our God. And so that's what he's trying to keep before them. Look on down at verse 16. What we're about to see is a turning point in the book of Joshua. Up to this point, these first 11 chapters have been a battle for the land. The children of Israel were victorious because God had brought them out of captivity in Egypt uh, through the Red Sea. They had crossed the Jordan River. Those are pictures of their victory, right? But now they have to take possession of the land. So it has been a fight for this land, and we're going to see the battle end and then possess the land here. Look at verse 16. So Joshua took, his entire, took this entire land. That's not a small thing right? The hill country, all the Negev, the hill country, that's where the most fortified enemies were. That's where the toughest fighting took place. The whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountains of Israel with their foothills from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Now, again, some of you might say, well, why all the details there? Um, a couple things. First of all, these are real cities. This isn't a, a story that is uh, just a fairy tale. It is a historical story. All these are real places. It also reminds us that God laid out the boundaries for his covenant people in the land that he was going to give them. And some people say, well, what's, what's, what's the difference between what God is doing here with the children of Israel coming in and taking over this land from what Russia is doing in the Ukraine? Is this just a land grab? No. God had promised this land to his children uh, way back during the time of Abraham, one of the first characters that we see in Scripture, over a thousand years. And from this land, about the size of Rhode Island, right, a small piece of land, God was going to raise up his covenant people. The Messiah would come through this group of people and be a light and salvation to all nations. So that's what God is doing. Verse 18, Joshua waged war against all the kings for a long time. Uh, if you have your Bible still open, I want you to underline that phrase for a long time. Here's what we know. 
We, we read this and we think, well, Joshua and the children of Israel, they just crossed over uh, the Jordan River. They came into the land and boom, they drove out all the inhabitants pretty quickly. I mean, we just read this in about 20 minutes, right? So that's what happened. It took seven years. This was a seven-year battle for uh, conquest of the land. That's going to be really important in just a few moments. So Joshua waged war against all the kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. That's the group of people that we saw several chapters back that deceived the children of Israel, right? And and Joshua makes a covenant. He compromises with them, and so he has to keep his oath, which we saw last week was a great thing. He keeps his commitment, but not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. In other words, Joshua is done with compromise. He understands how much compromise had already cost him, and he doesn't make any more compromises. He obeys the Lord and does what God has called him to do. Verse 20, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel. God brought all these kings together as all his plan uh, against overwhelming odds so God can show his undescribably great power, right, to bring about this victory so that he might destroy them totally. In other words, drive these inhabited people out of land, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. And for so many people, man, that's tough. Like, exterminating them without mercy, that's not the God that I grew up with. We didn't see a God like that on the flannel board VBS, you know, growing up. What has taken place here? Again, I want you to see that for over a 1,000 years, God has given this group of people, the Amorites, a chance to repent. And that has been God's mercy on them. And some of them did, right? Rahab does. The Gibeonites do. Some of them do. But then there is a group of them that just refuse the grace and the mercy and the power of God and reject Him. And one of the things that is true in Scripture, whether we like it or not, is the judgment of God. There will always be a forever too late with sin. Do you see that? That's just true in Scripture, whether we like it or not. And God is perfectly just in enacting His judgment. That makes sense. Now, here's something I, I want to say, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to, to bore you, but you might say, well, why did God do this? Why did He call them to drive these people out? Because here's what God knew: if He didn't, these pagan people, uh, their practices, all that they were involved in, would so damage His covenant people, and the compromises would be made so much so that He would not be able to to share His plan in a way that He He wanted to do. It would damage them. In fact, you say, well, how do you know that? Because there were two and a half tribes of the nation of Israel who did not come into the land, who compromised, who said to Moses, hey, it's plenty good for our animals here, so we'll stay outside of the Jordan. We'll just stay here. Here's what we know about them. The second generation, in other words, when their children came into power, they turned away from their living God because they enacted all the principles and practices of their pagan neighbors. That's what the story of Scripture tells. Verse 21, at that time Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites, verse 21, from the hill country. If you could, this is huge. Underline the word Anakites. Some of you are like, I'm underlining a lot here. What's going on? Well, at New Vision, we say our Bible is our life textbook, right? And so the Anakites, think about it. Have you heard about them? Who are they? So maybe there's some bells beginning to ring. Do you remember when the children of Israel, under Moses' leadership, as soon as they come out of captivity in Egypt, Moses sends 12 spies to look into the land? Some of you remember that story? Ten of them come back with a very negative report. And what do they say? The reason that they won't go into the land, they say there are giants in the land. That's these Anakites. Bible scholars, Anakites mean long-necked ones. These were big boys. Many scholars say that uh, Goliath descended from the Anakites. So they were large people. And it was the children of Israel 47 years earlier who said, whoa, there's giants in the land. We cannot go in. But this is so fascinating to me. 
And I wonder if it'll be fascinating to you. The last battle to take the land was victory over the who? The Anakites. Our God still destroys the giants in the land and in your land. Is that hopeful to anybody? Sure is to me. So that, that's just sort of an interesting thing. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Nab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel territory, only in Gaza. Now, this is talking about the soldiers, the fighting men. Certainly, we know that there were some of the, the Anakites still, still uh, alive. So Joshua took the entire land, verse 23. He took the entire land. He came in. He was victorious. But he had possession now of the land, and those things are, are different. God had promised him the land, promised the children of Israel the land, but it was through all these battles that then he had possession of the land. That's all we're going to talk about today because I think it's such an important point. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had declared to Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance according to their tribal division. I love this last sentence, the land had rest for more. And to that, you might be saying, what's the point here today? I mean, that was kind of interesting that Joshua was a successful military leader. God gave him victory over and over again, and they took possession of the land. But listen, I got some real stuff going on in my life. What does this have to do with me today? Well, I want to tell you something a lot. And I want to, I want to do something. I want to put a map up on the, on the screen here for a second, just, just a simple map. Pastor Josh helped me with this. These are some of the cities um, in Canaan, modern-day Israel, that Joshua uh, routed, destroyed when he took possession of the land. Now, I want to put another map up here, similar map but different words. I think this is a map of our heart and our life because just like when Joshua came into land, there were fortified cities there that he had to push out of the land to destroy. Listen, there are fortified places in your heart and in my heart that God wants to drive out of the land that is our life. Does that make sense? They can be overwhelming fear that has just plagued you for years, that has led to anxiety. There can be pride that has damaged so many relationships. You look back on the story of your life, pride has damaged so many relationships in your life. Envy, lust, leading to pornography or sexual addiction and destroyed relationships. Maybe it's, it's gluttony. That's me and, and my problem with food throughout the years. Greed or just complacency uh, in your life. All these things. Here's what I want to say. All of us. Even if we're, if we're in Christ and we're victorious because of what Jesus Christ has done, our sin debt has been met. Do you believe that if you're in Christ? We're born again, but still we aren't able to possess all that God has for us because there are fortified places in our heart and God wants to drive them out. Do you see that? And we're going to take a look at a battle plan for possessing the land. First of all, the land that is your heart. And we're going to see some principles that we saw in Joshua's uh, victories that God will use in your life to drive out these inhabited places in your life so that you can be freer than you've ever been before in your life. Does that sound good to anybody? Well, if you've got 20 minutes, do you? Okay, yeah. My back's hurting. You can surely listen for 20 minutes. I mean, I'm standing up here uh, talking for, for 20 minutes. My doctor's sitting down on the front row in case I go down, so we do have medical help here today. That's good. I want to show you a, a, a painting here that maybe help to illustrate what we're talking about. That this is a French painting um, that uh, is in, in, entitled 
Um, can we put, I forget the name of this painting. Can we put that back? It's the medicine here. If I forget something today, it's the medicine uh, that, that is here. Yeah, Christ Mocked. Christ Mocked is the name of this French painting. Uh, there was a lady in France several years ago that uh, put, uh, was about to put her house up for, for sale, small home that she had. Uh, there was a, an, an auctioneer who came in, going to auction everything she had. Ha- this painting was hanging, hanging above a hot plate in her kitchen. She didn't even have a fully functioning stove. She had this painting hanging above a hot plate. The auctioneer was wise enough to say, hey, this looks familiar. She knew the, the, the auctioneer knew the work of this artist. This had been a lost painting for several hundred years. And so this painting went to auction, and it sold for $26.8 million. It was hanging above a hot plate in a small home. She was able to get a stove after this, right? <laughs> she had it all the time, right, from the moment that she purchased it. She just didn't fully possess it, right? She wasn't reaping all the benefits of it. I think it's a picture of the church today. Even as a follower of Christ, victory and possession are not necessarily the same thing. I think for so many of us, we are not possessing all that God has for us, and don't you want to? Well, it's going to take a battle to drive out these inhabited places, anger, overwhelming fear, lust, greed, complacency, unforgiveness. All of us have these fortified places in our heart, don't we? Let's just be honest. Everybody here does. But to be free, there's going to be a battle that needs to take place. So let's look at a battle plan to possess the land. This isn't my battle plan. This is just what we see in the book of Joshua, all right? We're down to 17 minutes. You guys are hanging in. Here we go. First thing is this, if you're going to possess the land, let God possess the land of your heart, you have to make a declaration of war. That's what we see. The children of Israel had to make a declaration of war. I hear, the, hear so many people talk about wrestling with sin. The time of wrestling with sin is over. We need to declare war on these fortified places in our life. Declaring war is what makes the difference in our, in our spiritual life. Let's take a look at these pictures that you have seen and I have seen from the uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine. These are Ukrainians, just everyday men and women just like you who have grabbed a weapon, who have ceased their work, and they are going to war to defend their land. I think it is time for the church to go to war, to step into the freedom that is there in Christ. God could have given, let's go back to Joshua, he could have just handed them the keys to the land and driven out all of those inhabited people. Couldn't God have done that? He didn't do that. He wanted to work in and through them. There was going to be a battle that is going to take place, and that is a battle that needs to take place in our life for us to possess all that we have in Christ. You following me? So we have to declare war on those, on those things. And so why declare war? Because when we declare war, it creates a sense of urgency. There's a lot at stake. It heightens our senses. Every time in, in war, every time a, a, a twig cracks, you, you look around and you see you're alert, right? You're, you're, you're not distracted by anything else except the battle that is at hand. You live very purposeful, right, in war. That's what we need. And, and you clearly understand your enemy. Here's one of the things. We need to identify the enemy. I mean, and just one at a time, what is that first thing you think that God really is wanting to drive out in your heart and your life? I know what it is for me. I have to call it what it is. Because, listen, when we identify the enemy, it helps us develop a, 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 a battle plan. Craig Rochelle says this, and it's a great statement. He says, you can't defeat what you can't define. 
So what is it right now that God says, listen, it is time to go to war. It is time to go to war against that lust. It's time to go to war against that deep-seated unforgiveness. It's time to go to war against envy that is robbing you of any kind of contentment. It is time to go to war against that fear and that anxiety that has taken so much from you. It is time to go to war against that addiction that robs you of who you are over and over again. Declaring war also does this. It breeds a heightened dependency on God, right, because we're all in. The children of Israel in in Joshua chapter 11 were up against a superior army in number and in weaponry, but when they declared war, it created a greater dependence upon the Lord, which brought about their victory. That same thing can happen. Pastor Ben Ben shared this quote with me. actually shared it Thursday night. I stole it as I was watching online. He said, overwhelming odds drives us to our undefeated champion. Do you feel overwhelmed against lust, against anger, against unforgiveness, against an addiction to to alcohol? Do you feel like there's overwhelming odds against that thing? It's been plaguing you or battling you for so long? Well, listen, overwhelming odds drives us to our undefeated champion, and God is able to bring that victory in our life. God wants us to depend on him and him alone. That's what's going on two times in that first section where he says to hamstring the horses, which I know if you're a horse person, you don't like to hear. I, I, I get that. Burn the chariots. What is God trying to teach us? Depend on him and him alone. And it, and it, and it begs us to ask the question, God, what are these other things? What are these lesser things in my life that I have depended on instead of depending on you? Deuteronomy 21 says, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Look at this, another similar passage, Psalms 27, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know, it would be great homework. What is it that you're trusting in? What is it when life gets tough, tough when the battle rages that you trust in other than God? So first thing, if we're going to make a battle plan to possess the land, to let God drive out some of these inhabited places in our life, we have to make a declaration of war. Make a declaration of war. We're at war. Number two, refuse to compromise with the enemy. This is one of the things that you see Joshua, uh, Joshua doing. It's a big mistake he makes earlier with the Gibeonites. He compromises with them, and it costs him so much. And compromise always costs us more than we're willing. So let, let's talk about compromise just for a moment here today. Compromise, what is it? Compromise is, is, is giving in to less than God has called you to. That's what compromise. It's always giving in to less than what God has called you to. Compromise will always expose us and always make us vulnerable. Can I tell you something today? Compromise is killing us. For every area of your life and my life, God has given us a clear command in Scripture whether it's our sexuality, whether it's our attitude inside relationships, whether it's our money, whether it's how we go about our, our professional life, whether it's our ability to forgive those who have hurt us and wronged us, there's always a standard in compromises when I give in to less than that. And compromise always really begins slowly with just kind of what we might think is a small decision or a small thing. Then it's fueled by dependence on ourselves because we say after that, you know what, that wasn't so bad. Yeah, I stepped out of God's will just a little bit here, but I'm still standing better than I've ever been. It's an 80s song right there, so those of you who missed, missed it. Then we begin to form deep-seated habits that are hard to break. That's where these fortified places are. 
They start with small compromises, dependence upon self, deep-seated habits that are hard to break. We used to say with our boys when they were home, when they were younger, teenagers, and we'd ask them to do something or we'd give them a curfew or whatever. If you've raised teenagers, everything we asked, they came back and they countered, right? You're like a negotiator. And we just developed a rule. We said, we don't negotiate with teenagers here. Our government doesn't negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with teenagers. There can be similar. It can be similar. We said, we don't, we don't negotiate. We don't negotiate with you. Didn't always work, right? But, but, but that's what we do. We're always negotiating. But negotiating with God, in, in a sense, we're compromising our faith, and it compromises a killer. Charles Spurgeon, who we quoted last week, maybe one of the greatest preachers of all time, from the 1800s, here's what he said, and it is so true today. He says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. We've made compromises in so many ways. And here's something that is so important. I want to share this, and I really hope you can wrestle with it a little bit. Here's one of the things that compromise does. Compromise always dims your light, which is meant to be a witness to the world. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the reason that you're still here is to bring glory to God and so that other people can see the nature of who God is. In fact, that's the story of the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, but compromise dims the light. And compromise is always costly. Remember, we talked just a few moments ago, those of you uh, who, who were locked in, the two and a half tribes that said, you know what, yeah, I know we're supposed to go in and possess the land, but we're good here. Like, we're close, because compromise is always that. Like, I'm close. Like, we're, we're just going to stay just on this side of the river, right? Because it looks like the cattle can graze well here, and like, we don't want to go in and have to, have to fight day after day. We, we, we got this. So they compromised, and they stayed just close to the river, but didn't cross the river. And by the next generation, they were destroyed because they'd given in to the sins of their neighbors. That's what compromise does. So if you want a battle plan to possess the land, first of all, we're coming to a close. Make a declaration of war. Number two, refuse to compromise with the enemy. Number three, I hope this encourages somebody. Number three, realize that possessing the land takes time and a tribe. Remember, I, 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 I ask you to underline a word in verse 18, Joshua chapter 11, verse 18. Joshua waged war against all the kings for a, help me, long time. How long was this battle to take the land? Seven years. You ever frustrate, anybody here frustrated with your spiritual growth and think I should be further along than I am right now? Anybody? Me? You ever had that time? I should be further along in, in, in my marriage. I should be, be further along in my understanding of Scripture. I should be further along. I shouldn't be still struggling with this same sin area. I think we've all been there. But listen, taking possession of the land takes time. It isn't anything that happens overnight. It took Joshua seven years to possess the land. And that struggle that you're in right now is going to take some time. Joshua doesn't possess the land overnight, and he doesn't do it alone, right? We've talked about this before. It's hard to understand Joshua's success story without his running mate, Caleb. They're right there side by side. When Joshua's down, Caleb's up, and they encourage each other. You won't do this alone. You won't possess the land alone. That's why here we talk about it every single week to the point that people just get, get tired of it. Uh, we want you to be in a group. We want you to, to do life with other believers because alone you will not possess the land. You're an easy target of the enemy. Joshua didn't win these battles on his own. He had the favor and the power of God, but he also was a part of an army. Do you see that? So, so who are these people? 
that you are locking arms with, that you're being honest about the sin areas in your life, if you have defined it, called it out, what your struggle is, you've waged war against it, who have you let into that battle with you? And be willing to be patient. It'll take some time to do that. Eugene Peterson, he said this. He said, discipleship or our spiritual growth is really a long obedience in the same direction. I think we ought to encourage each other a little bit more than we do, right? I see that sometimes when somebody struggles and we begin to load up in the church, we do that all the time, right? We load up, guilt and shame a little bit, understanding that spiritual growth takes time. Let's look at the fourth and final thing. Let's recap, then we're going to be done. And let me just say this. In just about three minutes, our band's going to come out. Pam's going to sing a song. It is currently my wife's favorite song. So if you get up and walk out, which some people did in the last service, it's going to offend my wife, and that will offend me. I'd come after you, but my back's hurting. I can't do that today. But it's going to be a great song. You don't have to stand and sing. I just want you to sit and listen because it's going to kind of speak to really what God wants to do, to really do a work of helping us to possess the land. Here's the fourth and final thing. Realize you've got to declare war if you're going to possess the land, if God's going to do it. Refuse to compromise with the enemy. Realize that possessing the land takes time and a, and a tribe. And realize that your greatest struggle, what has been plaguing you for years, that can become your greatest spiritual victory. I think it is so cool, this story. It's these giants, the Anakites, that really bookend this story. When the first Hebrews came and spied on the land, what did they see? They saw the giants. There's giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers to them. We can't go in. We're out. Cost them 47 years. A whole generation has to die off. But you got a giant in your land. And it's been plaguing you for years, hasn't it? And it has cost you so much. How much longer? How much longer and how much more is it going to cost you until you realize that the greatest enemy that you face right now can be a chance for the greatest breakthrough and victory that you have ever experienced in your life because this story begins and ends, this conquest begins and ends with giants and it reminds us that our God still slays giants in our land. What is it for you? Man, I know what it is for me. And it's the belief that our God can do it. There's some teenagers that are watching online today. I've heard from some of you this week. You're exceedingly fearful. What you see on the news, the threat of, of, of nuclear war, all that's going on in the Ukraine and all the pictures that you're seeing just coming out of COVID and now this, and fear is paralyzing you. In fact, fear is your giant. And it's cost you so much. That's your Anakite. And today as we take a look at the scripture, we see that our God drives giants out of the land. 
and he can drive them out of your land and you can step into a place of rest, into a place of peace. Because your greatest struggle can be the moment of your greatest victory if you will trust him. Father, thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for your word. We have been so confused for so many years and we have just thought victory and possession were the same thing and they're not. And so consequently, we have been saved and stuck. Our hearts have been full of these fortified things that have set themselves up against you and we have just lived alongside them for so long. But just as the story of Joshua is a story of you driving the giants out of the land, Lord, you want to do it in our heart, in our life. Father, today, could we declare war? Father, today, could we be done with compromise? Father, today, could you grant us the patience to realize it's going to take some time and a tribe? And God, today, could you just encourage us once again that our greatest battle can be the point of our greatest victory and breakthrough. We'd ask you to do it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.